BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When Americans hear about surveillance in China, it's usually through a dystopian lens. There's good reason for that. In the west of the country, the Uyghur minority has been persecuted with unprecedented technological force. And a new book by Wall Street Journal reporters takes a different approach from the anti-surveillance screed. They instead aim to help people grasp state surveillance in its totality. They ask how the Chinese government's deployment of AI-powered tools of social control can actually be alluring to everyday people, even as it's nightmarish to those caught in its algorithmic teeth. So join us this morning for a discussion of state surveillance in China after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In a new book, Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, Wall Street Journal reporters Josh Chin and Lisa Lin travel the country and the Chinese internet to understand what expanded state surveillance has done to everyday life in the last decade. For some, it has meant an ease in getting things done, automated payments and facial recognition to enter certain places. And for others, like the Uyghur community, the surveillance state has meant hundreds of thousands of their fellow Uyghurs have been detained or imprisoned, often with little evidence. This book provides an intellectual history of the style of digital authoritarianism and a portrait of how the Chinese Communist Party has fused its traditional social management techniques with Chinese and American technology companies' new capabilities. It's a really good book, both for people who work in the technology industry and just anyone who's interested in how billions of people in China and many other countries are or will soon be governed. Thank you for this book and for joining us, Josh and Lisa. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having us. Uh, Lisa, let's start with you. Let's start with where your reporting started. Uh, You were covering tech startups in China. And what did you start to see? Sure. The I guess the genesis for the book started in a very Wall Street Journal fashion. Um, I I was I had started to cover tech startups in China, and I was trying to follow the money. You know, figuring out where where invest where investors were putting the money, um, what was the new hot area they were looking at, and I noticed investment going into a particularly niche space that I had never seen money flow into before, and it was in the artificial intelligence space. And it wasn't just going into every aspect of AI. It was going into one particular area, and that was image recognition. Mm. Uh, so I, I, d- I dug a little bit more deep, 
deeply into the topic, I spoke to more people, and I realized the reason why Chinese startups were getting so much money from investors. Chinese startups had eventually uh, Chinese startups had essentially come up with systems that they were selling to Chinese police in incredibly lucrative contracts, uh, basically using facial recognition to identify criminals and people of interest off the street. Uh, and that's that's really actually how we got a, fo- a foothold into the mm. surveillance industry. And then the aha moment for us, you know, the, 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 the moment where we realized that this was a bigger thing than we both expected was when Josh... Um, did a trip up to the northwestern region in China called Xinjiang. And that's where probably about 14 million ethnic minorities coexist and they live side by side by with Han Chinese. And he realized that the systems there, the same systems that I've been seeing that were used by Chinese startups and sold to Chinese police, were used in ways that were way more dystopian and way more sinister than other Chinese cities um, mm. that I've seen. Yeah. Josh, tell, tell us more about that reporting. Yeah, so um, uh, so we went we went out to Xinjiang in late 2017, and at the time, we had been we had done a few stories on on surveillance, and we'd been hearing rumors you know, just from people who'd been out to this region. It's um, it's a big sort of mountainous, rugged region, about twice the size of Texas, um, mm. way out on the. That's big. It's large. <laughs> it is extremely large. And um, and it's it's remote. It's way out on the sort of Central Asian frontier, and um, and so people don't travel out there very often. But people who had traveled there came back, and they were saying, "Oh, you know, this, this technology you guys have been writing about is everywhere there. You should really go check it out." Um, and that's kind of all we knew. I mean, there wasn't really much at that time, uh, you know, in the news about Xinjiang. So so I went out there with a with a colleague from the Wall Street Journal. And we drove in, uh, trying to avoid the airport because we didn't. We weren't sure if we'd be detected there. Um, and we crossed the border, and it was. I mean, you know, I've been, I've been in, at that point. I've been a, a reporter in in China for more than a dozen years, and I was surprised by a lot of things, but I was rarely shocked. Uh, in this case, I was completely shocked by what I'd seen. It was just unbelievable. It was something I just never imagined existing and and essentially what we saw was a um a place where the chinese government was you know they were targeting the local muslim turkic muslim populations in ways that were reminiscent of sort of 20th century you know totalitarian states they they'd set up a, an internment camp system where they were sending certain Uyghurs and other minorities who they thought were threatening and basically to sort of re-engineer them, you know, uh, mm. politically re-educate them. And what they had done to feed people into that system, so that was, you know, that was this kind of revival of a 20th century uh, institution that I, you know, I don't think anyone mm-hmm. thought would come back, right? You know, I thought we, um, and they were combining it with this 21st century uh, surveillance network that was tracking and categorizing Uyghurs, um, sort of according to the level of threat they might potentially pose in the future. Based on an opaque algorithm fed with data that nobody understands. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, and the way that, you know, I mean, if you were a Uyghur, what we discovered when you got there, um, you know, is, you know, if, if you're a Uyghur sort of trying to go about your day in Xinjiang, especially back then, um, you know, essentially everywhere you go, any public place you go into, whether it's a bank or a hotel or a market, you have to go through a security check, scan your ID card, which is then matched against your face. 
So if there's anything wrong with anything you've done, um, an alarm will go off. Um, if you go to get gas, uh, gasoline, right? So they're worried about, the Chinese government is worried about, uh, ostensibly worried about terrorism in, in Xinjiang. And so if you go to get gas, you have to get out, you have to scan your face. No one can go into the gas station with you. All of your passengers have to get out. Um, uh, we saw people getting their DNA collected, just mass DNA collection um, under the guise of sort of public, free public health checkups, including children. Uh, so, that, so children's DNA was going into these criminal databases. Um, and uh, in one place, they actually had uh, a rule that if you wanted to buy a knife, if you were a Uyghur, you had to provide your ID card, and it was it was scanned in or laser etched into the knife in a, in the form of a QR code, so that they could trace if your knife was sort of used somehow in in, in a way that wasn't supposed to be. Huh. I mean, do if you're a Han Chinese person living, you know, in the cosmopolitan eastern seaboard, do you know what's happening out there? Yeah, that's a good question. Most people don't. Uh, this and and this is. All to do with state censorship. And in, in China, everyone probably has heard this term, the Great Internet Firewall. Mm-hmm. And this Great Internet Firewall is so effective that it keeps out all sorts of foreign websites. And one of its uh, main targets is to keep out foreign news websites. So a lot of the reporting in Xinjiang has been done by foreign news agencies because to the Chinese government, you know, their own state media outlets and state propaganda outlets are essentially pushing the idea that what we're doing in Xinjiang is not, you know, it's it's not oppressive. What we're actually doing is we're empowering them with like the skills or the jobs to help them integrate better into to, with Han Chinese and the rest of China. So the the Chinese state media narrative is overwhelmingly positive in favor of what the Chinese government is doing. So most Han Chinese have no idea that this is happening because the reporting that you know the Wall Street Journal has done, the New York Times, CNN, all that's blocked and mostly inaccessible unless you have certain software downloaded to help you jump that firewall. I was also just kind of stunned by some of the reporting that you have from out there, like when you described that there was a slogan on the wall of one of these facilities that said, all ethnic groups should gather in a tight embrace, like the seeds of the pomegranate, and that there was a sense of like forced assimilation was the only way to maintain social cohesion. That That is the, the policy, right? Yeah. So, the, you know, the policy in Xinjiang, um, it, it, it's undergone a change recently. So for, for most of the the first few decades of the Communist Party uh, rule in China, they had they'd, they'd adopted this sort of Soviet model, um, which which was kind of anti-imperialist, and the idea was that um, that you know ethnic minority populations should be given a certain amount of, of autonomy to 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 um, to ri- raise themselves up, and that eventually the theory was that once they got to a certain level of development, they would naturally want to kind of join the great communist ex- you know experiment, um, and. What happened in China is, you know, there's there's a lot of resistance to Communist Party rule in Xinjiang. I mean, b- partly because it's culturally, sort of ideologically, linguistically very distinct from China. I mean, if you go there, you know, a Uyghur-dominated city in Xinjiang feels much closer to Istanbul than Beijing, mm. right? And so, you know, the Communist Party's gotten very frustrated with this resistance. And, I, you know, at a certain point, there were, there were some violent attacks uh, in response to Communist Party rule in 2013 and 2014 that really surprised people, I think. And uh, and as a result, that led to this new, um, much more aggressive 
campaign of forcible assimilation. The idea was that it's no longer, we can't afford to wait. Um, we're just going to make Uyghurs sort of join the, this, this big Chinese project. Do you have a sense of the scale of this, you know, social re-engineering project? This, what, I'm not even sure what word to use for it. Is cultural genocide too strong? I mean, what, what is happening there? Like, what's the scale of it? Right. It's, um, yeah, you know, the, the question of what to call this is actually really interesting because I think we're all, we all sort of reach for these 20th century words like, like genocide. Uh, when what's happening there is really this new, a sort of new phenomenon that we really haven't seen before. Um, but it is massive. You know, in, in Xinjiang itself, uh, it, it essentially, the system covers everyone. Um, there's, there's not a, a Uyghur, there's not an ethnic minority person in Xinjiang who's whose data is not being harvested and tracked on a basically mm -hmm. constant basis, right? So if you're, and that includes in your home, you know, sort of anywhere you go, um, if you're walking down the street in, 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 a, in a room in the capital of Xinjiang, for example, police will just, can they randomly, they can randomly demand that you hand over your smartphone and, they will, and, and they'll scan your phone, right? So, um, and it is, I mean, it's, they sp they've spent billions of dollars uh, on this, um, you know, blown out their budgets, uh, just immense amounts of money. Uh, and so it really is, it's, it's, it's pervasive. We're talking with Josh Chin and Lisa Lin, journalists with the Wall Street Journal, uh, about their most recent book, Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. We also, we would like to hear from you. I mean, if you've traveled to China over the last decade, and of course, you live here in the Bay Area as well, what has your experience been with the surveillance state there and surveillance here in the U.S. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Stay tuned for more about this new book, Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking with Josh Chin and Lisa Lynn, journalists uh, with The Wall Street Journal, about their new book, Surveillance State. 
You know, one of our listeners tweets about camera density. They tweeted an infographic at us comparing the number of cameras in places like Beijing, 22 per 1,000 inhabitants, at least according to this infographic, to those in London, which has actually a greater number, 48 per 1,000, or DC, 45 per 1,000. And the question the Twitter user asks is, which is the real surveillance state? My question for, for you two is, is that actually a fair comparison that just using kind of camera density. And in particular, I wanted to maybe you to reflect on what those cameras are doing and where they're feeding their video and data. Yeah, so I think it's a bit hard to compare London with Beijing or to compare the UK with China and based on camera density. It's simply just not apples with apples. Uh, and, and there's several reasons for it. You know, the three big ones are, firstly, in terms of cam- camera technology, a lot of the cameras in London were installed many, many years ago. You know, in, in China, the the camera installations have really happened in the last, I would say, like five years. Mm-hmm. And these cameras are just based on much better technology. They're much smarter cameras because they're also running better analytics, Mm -hmm. such as face and image recognition that just empowers the cameras to do just so, so much more. And in in terms of absolute numbers, when you look at the country scale, the scale in the country, like the UK has an estimated maybe 5 million cameras. China has more than 400 million (laughs) I mean, I understand they differ in size, but China is still 80 times um, the number of cameras that the UK has. And finally, I think the most important point is in China, there are no safeguards to using these cameras. There's no code of conduct or there's no, you know, oversight body making sure that the police aren't abusing the cameras in the way that we've just heard Josh talk about in Xinjiang. Whereas in the UK um, and in other Western democracies as well, you're seeing... You know, the UK in particular has a code of conduct for surveillance camera use to just make sure that people are using it in a responsible fashion. And they also have a surveillance commissioner. Uh, It used to be called the surveillance camera commissioner. And now I think it's called the biometrics uh, commissioner that kind of sets out. It's it's part of, you know, the home affairs department, but Mm -hmm. it's independent and, and really kind of there to make sure that the police aren't abusing the technology in ways they shouldn't be. Yeah. You know, Josh, um, in this book, you do talk about kind of the ideology that underpins the use of this technology for social control in this way. Like, if I'm just a regular person in China, what's the appeal that's being made to me that I should be okay with this kind of deployment of these systems? Right. You know, so I think to sort of understand that, you know, you you have to think a little bit about what the, the social contract uh, the sort of unspoken social contract that the Chinese Communist Party has with with the Chinese people, right? And uh, for many decades, it was um, we will deliver insanely high historic levels of economic growth that um, that may make you rich, and in return, uh, you will not talk too much about politics and not challenge our authority, right? And that worked for, for several decades. I mean, there was double-digit economic growth for a long time. And even if people weren't getting rich, they did sort of feel like there was that chance and they, they had this sort of op- this sense of optimism, right? Mm-hmm. And in recent years, that's that started to, to, to sort of crumble um, inevitably. I mean, China's economy couldn't possibly grow at that rate for right. that long, right? I mean, the, there's, a, there's a certain gravity to economic growth. Um, and... 
and so, you know, the Communist Party needed something else, right? They needed to offer something else. And, and so what they have been talking about is this sort of uh, moderately prosperous society, right, where, where people are sort of generally happy and, and, and they lead sort of secure and predictable and, and safe, convenient lives. And uh, the way that they want to deliver that is, is through state surveillance, right? Because these technologies, um, you know, they're very similar to, to technologies people in, in, that we use in the U.S., right? There's like, like Amazon or Google, you know, they're, they're technologies that, that use our behavior to sort of predict things that we want or predicting things that we need. And uh, the Communist Party wants to do that on a sort of uh, so, like society-wide scale, right? To sort of predict problems that people might have and smooth those out and make their lives easier uh, and more predictable. I mean, this, this is, I'm just going to read a line to you from your own book because I thought it really summed this up perfectly. Uh, this quote, by mining insight from surveillance data, it, that is to say the Chinese Communist Party, believes it can predict what people want without having to give them a vote or a voice. By solving social problems before they occur and quashing dissent before it spills out onto the streets, it believes it can strangle opposition in the crib. And one of the things that I found really interesting, you know, the poll came out this week about San Francisco, about how unbelievably dissatisfied San Francisco residents are with with the city. And basically every part of the city receives, uh, you know, everyone thinks things are getting worse. And I was really, you know, I've been struck by what some people who study China talk about is sort of like output legitimacy. Like, sure, you know, we, we don't have a democratic system, but our people like what we're doing. We're getting things done. Whereas we have a very democratic system in San Francisco, and yet people don't really like how the city is is being governed for a variety of, of reasons. And it's kind of given me a new sense of like, this feels like it's kind of the appeal, right? Like you you want your city to run better. And you actually go to Hangzhou, right? And you go see like, well, what does it look like? Not in the West where this is the Employed for the most in the most dystopian way, but what about if you go to a prosperous place? And what's it look like there? So this is probably one of the more surprising um, takeaways from our research of the book. Uh, when when we went to when we went into this, we had you know had the idea that surveillance, sta- any sort of state surveillance, was inherently quite negative. Uh, and the more we began to research what was happening in in China and then speaking to the people on the streets, we realized there was an aspect of state surveillance that people actually found very attractive. Um, and this would be, I guess, the deployment of surveillance in towards smart cities. Um, so if if you go to the wealthy cities in China, you know, particularly those along the East Coast, like Shanghai and the cities around it, you see streets peppered with surveillance cameras. But instead of instead of tracking individuals or innocent minorities the way the cameras were tracking in Xinjiang, what these cameras were doing instead was to try and track fugitives or drug pushers, that's on the facial recognition front. Um, on the image recognition front, these cameras could also identify uh, trash on the street and then get the relevant person to come and quickly clean out that trash, trash pile. Or if there was a missing manhole cover, for example, yeah. which you know is a danger when you have kids running around and they're not looking and they accidentally trip and fall, like missing manhole covers would be flagged out 
to law enforcement or public order uh, officials as well. And, and quickly, you know, the problem would be solved. So th- there was a ton of data collection in these places, but the residents were very happy about that trade-off, right? Mm-hmm. Because it gave them safer streets, cleaner streets. And for the police and, and the law en- enforcement and law and order people, it gave them more efficiency at, you know, you don't have to hire so many people. Because in the past, if you needed to keep law and order on the streets, you had to have someone patrol 24-7. Or, and, and most people you know, wouldn't be willing to take late night hours. Right now, the AI is your night patrol. You know, it can flag at any hour of the day, like if anything untoward or anything uh, abnormal is happening. And it's not like this kind of trade-off is unfamiliar to Americans either, right? I mean, we make this kind of trade-off, particularly on the internet all the time, of trading privacy, even, you know, giving up data that we know will or could be eventually uh, accessed by the U.S. government all the time to technology companies. We want to hear from you. We're talking with Josh Chin and Lisa Lin, journalists with The Wall Street Journal, about their new book, Surveillance State. Would you trade greater surveillance for a more functional local government? It's a tough question. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. We've got a lot of people on the phone, so I'm going to try and get to a, a couple of questions before we keep moving through the book. Gene in Sacramento, welcome. Hi. Um, I just wanted to share an experience I had. Uh, we were in China in September 2019, right before COVID came out. And um, we were in the airport going from one city to another. I can't remember which airport it was, but um, we we're going down toward the gate. And I happened to look over at this uh, large poster-like thing. And all of a sudden, my face came up on it. And then it had all my information of my flight my flight number, the time, the gate. And then my husband, he moved into the spot and and then his information came up. It just kind of, I mean, it it kind of freaked me out, you know, that anybody walking by could have this information, my name. And Mm -hmm. I I just felt very invasive. It was very invasive, Mm -hmm. you know. So that's why I wanted to share. Have you ever had a similar feeling of that kind of exposure with U.S. technology or, or this was really novel? No. It was really, this is way too public. You know, mm. I just, yeah. yeah. I don't think um, I've had that experience in the States. Yeah. Not Great. yet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, not yet. <laughs> not that you know of, yeah. Thanks so much, Gene, uh, in Sacramento. Do you want to uh, reflect on that, Josh and Lisa, of just the, the differences in, in that approach of just sort of flashing somebody's information up on a, on a board as they're walking through an airport? Yeah, you know that's um, that's really that's a really fascinating story, um, and you know it's what, what's really interesting about China. In fact, I think one of the first stories we did uh, about facial recognition um, for the Wall Street Journal, uh, the very beginning of, of this uh, this whole project, was um, looking at the way that facial recognition was used to shame publicly shame people, mm. and um, so there's always been a public element to to the to to the way these technologies are used in China um, in the way that was used initially and, and it's still being used in China a lot and more and more is to shame jaywalkers right so so if you walk uh, you know if you if you cross the street uh, on a red light which is an epi- an epidemic problem in China 
um, you know, some of these intersections, they'll capture your face and they'll flash your name and your I- your ID <laughs> number um, and and sort of and 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 kind of digitally wag a finger at you, mm-hmm. right? And then if you keep doing it, you could get fined and that sort of thing. And so I think there's a sense in China that these technologies are always used publicly. So in that, you know, in an airport for ha- to have your information flashed up there, maybe, you know, maybe it's not actually that weird for Chinese people to, to sort of see their public mm-hmm. information, their private information displayed publicly like that. Yeah, no, the way we do that sort of thing in the U.S. is that shady mugshot companies take anybody who's ever been arrested by the police, put them yeah. online, and then extort people to get them to take their those pictures down. You know, just t- two different systems, two different ways to do it, right. you know. Um, it is, I mean, it, I, I came back to that again and again in this book of thinking, like, as as distant as some of these things can feel at times, also recognizing that there are these weird analogs in the U.S. of, of many of the same, in, in part because it's the same kind of wellspring of technology, right? Right. Right. Yeah. You know, actually, that was one of the things I remember, when, you know, doing this book, I mean, a few years ago, when we first started working on it and being kind of amazed at the use of facial recognition technology in airports in China. And I was like, oh, my God, look at this. They're scanning people. They get on airplanes. And now, you know, if you come in to the U.S. Um, through an international airport, um, there's a very, very good chance that your face will be scanned to, to verify your identity. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's uh, and that, that happened much faster than I thought it would. And. And you're right. Actually, the you know a lot of these technologies uh, were invented in the U.S. Uh, okay. We talked about Google and Amazon earlier, right? The sort of this basic idea of using harvesting behavioral data to sort of tell the future about about someone. But the the cameras, you know, some of the techniques, the you know, all of this technology is underpinned by by a, a type of AI known as machine learning or deep learning uh, that sort of teaches. Um, computers to sort of learn like humans do, right, by sort of, you know, learning to pick up patterns and that sort of thing. And um, and those breakthroughs came, you know, the big breakthrough in that technology came in the U.S., um, and it's still, the U.S. Is, is still, you know, one of the most advanced countries for, for pushing the envelope of AI. Right. Certainly yeah. our Bayer technology companies versus Baidu is one of the <laughs> big, uh, yeah. Go, go ahead, Lisa, sorry. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, Gene's story struck a chord with me because it really tells the story of the different privacy acceptance and awareness you have in both countries. Um, the U.S. and Western democracies have typically been a hit when it comes to the definition of privacy, right? You In the 18, 1890s, you had um, Louise Brandeis and Samuel Warren basically pen the right to privacy, whereas in China, it this whole... Ex- understanding of what privacy is and privacy awareness, that's only really happened in the last couple of decades. Um, And it's only taken root mainly in the bigger cities, because in the smaller cities, uh, or or I would put it this way, half of China's population still don't live in the bigger cities. Mm -hmm. You know, they live in the countryside. And for these people, the the priority for them is to put food on their plate and, you know, material wants. This whole self self-actualization concept of like privacy Mm -hmm. that's that's really something for the bigger cities Hmm. so so that's why i would say china can get away with a lot more of these um users that might seem very offensive in the west yeah uh let's bring in samuel in berkeley welcome samuel hi hi alexis thank you for having me on i really appreciate that yeah thanks Um, for joining us yeah you know yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I, a lot of your listeners are going to know me as either Target or Team Training Whistle. 
Um, I want to say something about the surveillance in China. I, I think, you know, the technology they're using, it, it's, it's, very tra- it's, it's much more transparent than what we use here. I think you mentioned this earlier, you know, we'll have that information and then we'll sell it like kind of underhandedly or something. But and the one lady, she had it, you know, hey, I'm walking through the airport. There's my flight information. You know what I'm saying? They're not ashamed of what they're doing. And I, I think that's 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 worth that's worth noting. Hmm. Um, but I, I think you know it's really what's not getting controlled. And one of your uh, your hosts mentioned it is the difference in the way they use this technology throughout the country. And you said you know up in Uyghur land you're using it to you know to bang people over the head, whereas down down in fancy land you're you're there to make sure the Uyghurs don't get into the fancy land. And um, you know, I, I don't I don't like that aspect of its use over there, though I do agree with their 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 much higher degree of transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really feel like, you know, China has had a lot of problems um, recently with trying to expand itself, go, go outside its borders, bully its neighbors. And um, I think the, the the good thing that they get from this surveillance technology is they get to see us use our technology in their country on them and like the army of the mice if you will and um so it's i i think it has its pluses and minuses but i think it's very important that china um learn how to treat all its citizens equally and i also think it's very important that china learn how to stay within its own borders and i think the best way for it to do this is to start by two-terming um, their present sheet. Mm. Yeah. Good luck with that. Samuel, let me, uh, just because we're going to go he- head into the break, I want to uh, bounce this to our guest here. Thanks, Samuel. Do you think that it that those are priorities for the Chinese Communist Party, or are they focused on other issues? Um, sorry, which, uh, which priorities? The the. Yeah, treat it, you know, treating everybody equally. Right, right. Yeah. So actually, you know, that that's a really fascinating question because it is precisely the aim of these systems to sort people and categorize them <laughs> uh, and, and sort of treat them unequally, uh, sort of depending on, on who they are and where they are and, and how much they want to conform with uh, Communist Party policy. Yeah. We're talking with Josh Chin and Lisa Lin, journalists with The Wall Street Journal. Their new book, really, really good book, Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. And we're asking you some different questions. One is, would you trade greater surveillance for a more functional local government? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. One listener says... I know an American who pointed out how stable the cities are. There are way less problems here, like people being shot walking or driving their cars or camping on sidewalks. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've got the Wall Street Journal journalist Josh Chin and Lisa Lin here talking about Surveillance State, their new book, and China's rollout of these surveillance technologies and how they work in different parts of the country. Um, listeners have got some really fascinating questions for you guys. Um, Matt writes in to say, America and other democracies are just as bad, if not worse, than China. Also, why does the camera matter in Britain? It's the software that matters. It's all just an image on a screen without the AI. You guys do some real comparisons within this book of, you know, the the different ways that these technologies uh, work and kind of the innards of the AI systems to which these cameras are attached. So how would you answer that question? about the different usages and, and trying to compare kind of, I guess they're really their moral properties. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was obviously a, a question for us from the, from the get go is, 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 you know, we knew that there was surveillance in London, um, as we've discussed and, and, in the U S and so, um, you know, we wanted to figure out how China was doing it differently. And I think, uh, it, you know, it, it's different in a couple ways. Um, you know, China, I mean, just step back. I mean, historically, just to, just to sort of nod to the U.S., the the role of the U.S. in developing uh, digital surveillance uh, after nine eleven, the U.S. basically created yeah, right. the digital surveillance industry, right? But I think so. What you know, what China is doing differently is um, is you know, uh, or what what makes China unique is it's doing it at a scale that has never been done before, and is doing it with a level of ambition. Uh, that that is that is, we've never seen before, right? So you just have—I mean, we're talking about you know, 400 million cameras, but there's also a, a sort of billion smartphones floating around in China, right? There's there's uh, mobile payments that log trillions of dollars of of, um, mm-hmm. of transactions every year, ten times the the volume of Mastercard globally, and and the Communist Party has essentially unfettered access to that data, which no other government in, in history could claim, right? To have that, you know, direct access to that much data, that much insight into what their population is doing. Yeah. And, um, you know, and what they want to do with it is obviously, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, but they, they sort of want to engineer society. They want to sort of in, in, in ways that I think, you know, 20th century, some 20th century kind of utopian totalitarian leaders wanted to do, but, but just couldn't because they didn't have the tools. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, in the U.S., uh, th- there definitely is a lot of this technology, uh, but it's fractured, right? You know, um, you know, uh, one one great example of, of of the difference is, you know, in China, everyone, all basically, almost all 1.4 billion people there have an ID card with a biometrically um, optimized portrait attached to it, right, with all their information in a single database that police and government agencies can easily access. In the U.S. You know what's your what's your main form of ID? Probably a driver's license, right? And so those are run by individual DMVs in different states. And you know anyone who's dealt with the DMV knows it's not easy to get information out of them. Um, so so that's just one one major mm-hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what really struck me is just how strong the not just the surveillance, but the action attached to it, as well as the 
in real life components of this. Like, of course, the U.S. has been, you know, shoveling as much data as possible, you know, via the NSA into all of these uh, warehouses for, for data of all kinds of things. But there's both some checks and balances, imperfect though they are, and the stuff in the streets strikes me as just remarkably different from what you would see in the U.S. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, you know, what China is, China is essentially willing to put these technologies to use um, without much you know, hesitation. Right. I mean, they've, been, they've existed in the U.S. for a long time and, and companies, you know, tech companies have sort of slowly rolled them out and here and there. And then they've run into controversies, you know, because because of, you know, things like facial recognition, for example, are have been historically yeah, very banned bad. around here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And banned partly because they have they they are. Um, biased, right? They've had, they've displayed, you know, real problems identifying um, people of color, for example, and women, right? Um, and so there are just real concerns. There have always been these concerns around around these technologies um, and and the way they can be misused and abused. But in China, they just sort of plowed ahead, right? They're like, we'll we'll sort it out later, uh, and that's a huge difference. Uh, Lisa, you know, you've covered startups and the way that they can inflate their capabilities at times. And Kyler writes in to say, there was a study on this technology a few years ago, and their impression was that the capabilities of, of the surveillance technology in China is exaggerated, and the strategy by the government is to make the population believe that the tech is far more capable and reliable than it is. Do your guests take the capabilities of the Chinese government surveillance at face value, and what strategies have they used to determine its true capability? So it's really hard to assess um, the true capability of these these systems because China is just not an open society. So it's very opaque. In, in terms of information, it's very hard to get any information. And it's not like the police want to volunteer this information. But what I can definitely tell you is what Josh and I found in our years of research is that the Chinese surveillance state is as much of a propaganda system as it is a tech and infrastructure project. The idea is to make its citizens believe that they're being watched. You know, it's very much like a panopticon. If you believe you're being watched, you're not going to be peeing on the street or, you know, mugging someone or breaking into a liquor store or a gas station. So it's the idea that the technologies are there and that helps to deter crime. And the reason why they're doing this is, you know, the Chinese, despite the number of people they have in China, they, they just don't have as many policemen per capita in China versus like the UK or the US or other countries to be able to oversee the population. So what they're doing is they're trying to empower the police force by using digital solutions like the surveillance state to do it. Let's bring in Kyle in San Jose. Yes. Hi. Thank you for having me on. Um, I want to first I'll answer the question. No, I would not trade um, extra surveillance for a more functional government. And the, the question I had for um, the, the guests were, you know, you guys had said that people in China had reported higher satisfaction with, you know, street cleanings and things of that nature due to the highest, higher surveillance. But my question was, does that, can we really trust what they're saying? I mean, what if they, I mean, because as you said, the Communist Party is all about crushing dissent. So if they were to be saying, oh, this is terrible, awful, and, you know, all these things, then wouldn't they receive a knock on the door? So, I mean, can we really trust what they're saying? And then 
Also, the other piece for San Francisco is, you know, you use for an example of, you know, people saying they're dissatisfied. Um, I feel, you know, one, we got to keep our freedoms, right? Our freedoms are priceless. And once you get rid of them, you're never going to get it back. And um, I think with like, as far as the homelessness and crime, you know, I think with our politics, the way they are at this time, super liberal and, you know, not really any kind of check on that there's no balanced approach um kind of like a one size fits all right now and i we need to figure out a way as a country to move past you know um, some of these things and start using more common sense with our governing so that that's all i had to say um and uh thank you for having me on yeah thanks kyle thank you for your uh perspective what would you say uh josh and lisa on this one so I could probably take the first question on can we trust them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's very difficult to understand what everybody in China thinks. You know, it's 1.4 billion citizens and China doesn't have independent polls. Uh, and even if they had independent polls, this is this is probably a topic that is so sensitive that they wouldn't be making any of the results public. What what I can tell you, though, is just from my own experience walking the streets, you know, having been based in China for eight years, just talking to people, understanding what their priorities are, what their acceptance levels are when it comes to surveillance and data mining. And, and the feedback is really overwhelmingly positive. Mm, you know, yeah. if you were a parent, you would definitely want streets clean of any, you know, drug pushers or fugitives. Um, so... So yeah, that I guess that's what, how I'd answer the first question. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I would, I would just add on to you know one thing we we encountered a lot. Um, just asking people about about surveillance is oh well you know uh, if you haven't done anything wrong, what do you have to worry about, right? Yeah. And um, and what was fascinating about that actually is that you know I mean we mostly encountered that in China at first because we were living in China. Um, but I, you know, I traveled uh, to the U.S. Uh, at one point, and I was—I remember standing in an airport, and there was a couple uh, in the security line ahead of me, and they were discussing some, you know, Western media report about state surveillance in China. And the husband uh, said the exact same thing: "Well, if, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're only worried about this stuff if you're if you if you have a reason to be worried." Um, and so I think that's—I think in some ways it's a sort of universal attitude. Um, Globally, and and it's a natural one, right? I mean, I think no one wants to sort of live a life of paranoia and have to think about these things. And and you know, yeah, they do keep keep streets clean and, and cities safer. Um, you know, and and you know, the trick, of course, is when you you know that all changes when, for whatever reason, you find yourself um, targeted, targeted, or, or opposed to the state, right? And, and you know, like an example in a place like Hangzhou, a wealthy city like that. Um, you know, they're often the government is often knocking down people's houses to make way for new shiny residential buildings, and there's often, and they often pay less than market value for those the houses they knock down. And so you you know you could be the sort of person, you know, you could be living a nice life in Hangzhou and enjoying all the benefits of surveillance, and then suddenly the government comes to take your house down, um, and you're in a, a pitched battle with them trying to get compensation, and then the surveillance state has a very different uh, sort of meaning for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, we used to do all the time in the United States through eminent domain. So we have all the freeways and BART and all that. Exactly. And, now, and, and yeah. now we have 
much more difficult to do that, and there's a lot of complications. Um, uh, really interesting uh, comments coming in, you know, especially you're talking about the airport scene. Eric writes in to say, as a U.S. citizen, one can opt out of U.S. Border Patrol from taking a picture when you board an aircraft and also when reentering the country. I do this every time, four times this year. For non-U.S. citizens, their entry pictures are stored for 75 years. I also just want to note, you know, there was a huge outcry in the U.S. when the kind of um, 3D scanners came out in airports. And, you know, there were people saying they were going to opt out and get, you know, hand search and all this stuff. And, you know, maybe people did that. But now when you go through any airport, you just see all the people going through those scanners. It's like Americans get bored. Um, uh, let's bring in uh, Mary Lou in Palo Alto. Welcome, Mary Lou. Hi there. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> um, I was in Xinjiang in 2016 to go trekking in the Pamir Mountains, which are west of China, in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. However, the Chinese government felt we were in China the entire time. We crossed along the way, driving along the old Silk Road. Um, What we were told was the province boundary, and we had to show our passports. Hmm. And in this place out in the middle of nowhere, they produced facial recognition, which, talking about biases, couldn't recognize my face on my passport. <laughs> I didn't fit any of their profiles. But uh, the, the amazing thing was we got to the lake we were going to begin in, and on any international map, that lake is in Tajikistan. But we had to report to the Chinese police there <laughs> and tell them our itinerary. <laughs> so it's bad in Xinjiang, but China sees this huge market to the West in the stands, and they're just taking over and no one's watching. Mm. Mary Lou, what an interesting story. Also, wish I could get the story of that trek in, in greater detail, but we only have five minutes left. That sounds like um, quite an experience. I, you know, uh, Josh and Liz, you do talk about the spread of this technology. And one of the central questions that you kind of grapple, grapple with in there is, is the Chinese government sort of remaking governments in its own image, or is it just allowing its capabilities to be known, used, and purchased by other countries? Right, yeah. I mean, that's a, there's a, there's a huge debate around China in general, right? Because now China is this big rising power. Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, is, is extremely forceful. And, and so there is this huge debate about whether China wants to remake the world order. Does it want to repla- replace the U.S.? And I think... I think what, at least in terms of state surveillance, the you know if you look at it through that lens, I, I think what the picture you get is is that China is it is definitely interested in in expanding its influence, um, but it, it's not evangelical, right? In the way that the U.S. is sometimes with democracy, right? It, it, it's saying we've got a model, uh, we've got these technologies and and the sort of political systems that go with it, and uh, you know if you want to buy one or the other or both together, that's fine with us, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, there's a co- there's a real commercial motivation for China to spread these technologies because they have, you know, China's home to, to two of the world's largest surveillance camera makers, Hikvision and Dahua. They're both actually based in Hangzhou. Um, and they are, you know, China has kind of saturated with surveillance cameras now, right? There aren't that many more places you can put cameras. So these companies want to sell, they need new markets, new markets mm-hmm. to sell to, right? So that's one huge motivation. But, you know, I think China, you know, we, we saw this in Africa. We visited uh, Uganda 
Um, and, and, you know, the leader there, Yuri Museveni, is a, a, one of these old, venerable, you know, venerable might, be, might not be the word, but older, uh, strongman, African leader. And he bought, uh, a few years ago, he was, he was facing, you know, new political opposition and, and decided to purchase a, a sort of Chinese surveillance starter kit for $270 million. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is Uganda doesn't really have China's resources. It doesn't have China's really capable bureaucracy. So it couldn't do exactly what China was doing. But it did, you know, Museveni did use those systems very effectively mm-hmm. to, to crash, crash down on the opposition. Yeah. Exactly. I want to run through uh, three short, sharp qu- uh, comments here. Marcus writes, these technologies will be used the way they always are in the U.S. and China to bolster the wealthy and persecute the poor funded with the people's purse. Another listener writes, when we were in China, you could let your kids take public transport as young as 8 and 10. Now that we live in the south side of San Jose, I'd love some cameras around, but it's a complicated question. Richard writes, if Oakland and San Francisco really cared about street crime, they would have a lot more cameras on streets aimed at face level so that the police would have good images of perpetrators after the fact. But these cities would prefer to have unsolved murders so that no one's photo would be taken. I think, you know, we we get it a lot on this show, and I think it's true across the Bay Area, that there is a new audience for some of these ideas that I didn't think existed here. And I didn't think it existed, you know, as recently as just a few years ago. It feels like things are changing here with regard to some of these issues. Josh, do you see that in in other parts or, or Lisa, other parts of the world that people are willing to make this trade? I don't mean to complicate the picture, but, you know, we've only been talking about the use of the surveillance state to make cities cleaner or run more efficiently, right? Essentially smart cities. But what China has also did is it's used state surveillance in matters of life and death. So for example, with COVID two years ago, we saw China deploy its state surveillance apparatus to try and stop the virus. Um, to and try and do it quite successfully. And yeah. do it quite successfully. You know, if, if you look at the numbers, like... In August, China had one COVID death for every 100,000 people. You know, in the U.S., it's 315 deaths per 100,000 people. And what China did very effectively was they began to track everybody in the country. You know, in, before prior to COVID, it was if you're a person of interest outside of Xinjiang or mainly the ethnic minority population in Xinjiang and other areas, what China did over COVID was to deploy a state surveillance system to every citizen and to track your mobile phone data to figure out where you were and where you were in the last two weeks to give you like a health score to assess if you were in close contact with someone. And if you were in close contact with someone, you wouldn't be able to roam the streets freely. And, and when they use that state surveillance when they used that state surveillance, they began to realize that it was actually quite effective at keep, keeping COVID cases and case counts yeah. down. Yeah. Fascinating new book, Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. We've been joined by the by the authors of the book, Josh Chin and Lisa Lin, journalists for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. It was fantastic. Thanks so much more us. to get to. Yeah, thank you so much, Lisa and Josh. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.